You're listening to World Building for Masochists. And we're wondering why we do this to ourselves. Look, we had to have something to do with all those documentaries we watch in our spare time. True. I'm Rowena Miller. I'm Alex Rowland. And I'm Marshall Ryan Maresca. This is episode three, as narrated by David Attenborough. darling friends. <laughs> uh, so this is a really cool episode today. All our episodes are very cool, naturally. Uh, but before we get started, I think uh, Marshall Ryan Maresca, you had a piece of news to tell us about? I have a piece of news. Um, coming up very soon, I will be the Toastmaster at ArmadilloCon here in Austin, Texas. That is August 2nd to 4th. It's sure to be an absolutely amazing time. In addition to seeing me make the Toastmaster speech and hopefully not fall on my face. <laughs> yes. We've got we've got as our guest of honor Rebecca Roanhorse. We've got Martha Wells as a special guest. We've got uh, Patrice Caldwell as our editor guest. It's going to be a mm-hmm. lot, a lot of good times. Excellent. And it's, it, I think that this episode goes up on the 24th of July, if I'm correct. Uh, so that will be next weekend that this uh, that Armadillo Con, right? Right. Cool. It's one of my favorite cons. I love it so. It's my hometown con, so I am biased, but... Very exciting. Yeah. Well, you keep you keep telling me to come to it, and I keep saying, well, get me to be a guest of honor <laughs> so someone else will play, pay for my plane ticket. Uh, I'll, I will whisper in the appropriate ears and see what, what that will... See what that will do. Yep. I can't promise <laughs> anything, but, you know, the, well, no. <laughs> who knows? Who knows? But I highly recommend it. Yeah. For well, everyone. That sounds fantastic. Cool. So we're, today we're going to be we're going to be talking a little bit more about uh, sort of biomes and the flora and fauna, kind of building off of last uh, week's episode, um, which I think we got pretty in depth about um, a bunch of cool environmental stuff. Uh, but now we're going to talk more about like the sorts of things that live in these places that we invented. Yeah. Yes, because I think last time we really focused on the astronomy and how your world is sort of physically constructed, and, and now it gets to, like, have things living on it, which is, is kind of fun if you're writing about, you know, people and places doing stuff. Yeah, yeah, you kind of need characters and, <laughs> and things happening. It can't just be uh, non-sentient meteors crashing into the Earth and... Uh, earthquakes that don't affect anyone or anything <laughs> except plants so exactly except we yes. didn't even have plants last time we didn't so even have gosh. plants last time we are we are really really desolate right now but no yes. we have to populate populate our our world that we're building do you, uh marshall oh sorry marshall ryan maresco would you like to tell the dear listeners about <laughs> listen i can't it's weird to just say your first name um <laughs> Would you like to tell the dear listeners about the uh, wiki that we have going? Well, we are starting up a wiki of all the information we're putting together about this beautiful world. And we don't have it fully set up yet, but we hope to, in the near future, have our Patreon and have one of the... Is it benefits? What's the or the rewards? Perks. For, rewards. One of yeah. the rewards for the Patreon rewards, is, perks, is yes. getting is getting access to the Patreon, access to the wiki, I'm sorry, um, either at a reading level or at a, at a editor level, depending on how mm-hmm. much you, you contribute to the Patreon. We're still working out the details on that, but hopefully, maybe by the time this is actually up and live, we'll have that worked out. It'll be amazing. <laughs> Coming soon. Coming Fantastic. soon. So you'll be able to read up on all the, all the cool elements of this world that we're putting together, including seeing the map that I made, using the tools we talked about last time. And now we're going to talk about biomes, and so there will probably be a new map, new version of the map with all the biomes mm-hmm. on it, which is always a fun thing to do. I love I love making a biome map. Excellent. Well, <laughs> we keep saying this word biome. What is a biome? It's funny you should ask. A biome... It is funny that I should <laughs> ask that, isn't it? <laughs> a biome is... A noun, which is a large, naturally occurring community of flora and fauna occupying a major habitat. And yes, if you've ever watched Planet Earth or Planet Earth 2 or any of those other fantastic BBC documentaries, they tend to um, 
kind of organize themselves around the idea of a biome. Let's look at a desert. Let's look at a forest. Let's look at a coastline. So I think that we have kind of a natural um, understanding of what a biome looks like just because we all kind of live in one. Yeah, except sometimes we don't know which one we live in or sometimes we're on kind of a weird fringe one because it's not like a hard and fast thing right it's kind of a spectrum between them um like a a desert might kind of merge gradually into a savanna or a um tundra might merge into a deciduous uh highland forest or or something like that but yeah it's it's a good thing to have this kind of taxonomy so we can talk about it in general terms at least. So what are, I I think that a lot of fantasy tends towards a few specific uh, biomes, some really common ones. Um, which ones have you guys seen most often in fantasy? Well, I feel like the Into the Woods theme is pretty common, right? I mean, you have oh yeah forests in general, whether you're looking at um, kind of your typical broadleaf, deciduous, seasonal forest, um, or if you're getting into maybe a little bit more of a taigi forest, um, but mm-hmm. something that kind of has that fairy tale evocation that we kind of associate with Western European folklore and that kind of thing. I feel like that crops up a lot in fantasy. Oh, for sure. Um, I think that in recent times, I'm seeing a lot more deserts recently. Um, for example, in K.A. Doerr's uh, new book, The Perfect Assassin, there's a gorgeous example of a very uh, Sahara-like desert. Um, in Empire of Sand by Tasha Suri, uh, that also uh, is very desert-oriented. Marshall, sorry, Marshall Ryan Rask. I keep calling you Marshall now, and then it sounds weird in my mouth, and I have to like <laughs> apologize and say your whole name. We're, I'm going to get over this one day. <laughs> well, um, I do you have, I mean, those are the, the ones you see the most common is basically the ones you find in Europe or the Middle East, uh, which are, you know, mm-hmm. broadly forests or taiga or Mediterranean or, or desert. Like those are the big ones. And we don't, there, there's cooler ones that we don't see quite as often. A couple books that I wanted to plug here, um, Thoriah Dyer's Titan's Forest series. The first book is Crossroads of Canopy, and that is set in a rainforest environment. Ooh, which very cool. Everything about it seems cool. Unusual. Including Thoria Dyer, who I've only had the briefest of interactions with on, on Twitter and such, but you know, in addition to writing fantasy books set in the rainforest, she's a veterinarian and an archer and regularly walks through the Australian outback. I mean... Very cool. Th- That's pretty cool. This is a cool lady, <laughs> That's pretty and, nice. and I want to know more about her. <laughs> yeah. One of the other ones um, is Tex Thompson's Children of the Drought series. The first book is One Night in Sixes. Um, that is very much a Western fantasy. So it's in that sort of Xeric scrubland <laughs> like you find all over my beloved Texas. Um, <laughs> it's where I live. I love it. I love the heat. This is, this is the kind of person I am. No heat. <laughs> no. 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 <laughs> no. Sorry, I am part lizard, so I'm just here basking in it. That's just what I do. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> and see, that's but see, that's a good thing because different different types of people in different cultures thrive in different biomes and different environments of different temperatures. Here's the problem with heat: with cold, <laughs> you can always put on more layers. If it's hot, there's only so much you can do before you're lying naked on your kitchen floor on the tile, trying to balance ice cubes on your sternum and feeling generally like miserable with all of your choices that have led you up to this point. This is true. This is very true. Yeah. Because cold, you can Um, always just get in bed. It's like, oh, cozy comforter. I'm happy now. Yeah, exactly. And you can like snuggle with people when it's cold. You can't. No, you don't want don't to be within five me. miles of another don't. human when it's no. hot. <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's see some other some other uh, cool biomes that have been represented in science fiction and fantasy. Uh, Ursula K. Le Guin did um, a really cool like Arctic slash Arctic tundra uh, in Left Hand of Darkness. Uh, I mentioned K. A. Doors, uh, the Perfect Assassin, already. Um, Rowena, did you have any, like, any that you wanted to shout out? Um, 
one that I, um, this isn't quite as unusual, but I really enjoyed how um, the biome of um, Sisters of the Winter Wood by Raina Rossner, it really mm-hmm. played with it being a forest and having kind of a village in the forest. But one of my favorite parts of it was actually she incorporated the river that moves through that, and that's um, really important to a lot of the animals, not just the people, but the animals and, um, like, you know, bears and swans, which are very important to the storyline if you read it. Um, so the idea of there being a water source as part of the biome I thought was very cool. Yeah, I, I, I want to see more books that use, like, wetlands or mangroves. Or... Oh, mangroves would be cool. Mangroves are very cool because you have, like, this whole ecosystem that exists right below the surface of the water, like, in the mangrove roots, and that's fascinating. I have a lot of, like, symbolic wetlands in my upcoming book, Choir of Lies, comes out this September. Please pre-order. Um, <laughs> uh, but... N- and I mean, I mean, I guess there's a little bit of like the uh, actual, like real world kind of uh, wetlands as well. It's not just like symbolic and allegorical, because um, that takes place in kind of a fantasy Amsterdam. Uh, and Amsterdam, of course, was built on extremely low lying uh, lands where it would get regularly fl- flooded. It is technically a couple feet below sea level, uh, and so it was only by human influence, which we'll get into in, I think, probably the next episode, um, that they were able to to uh, build cities in, in this place, right? Like, you have to build seawalls and stuff to adapt your environment to, to be able to be used. Actually, I, I, I want to know if there is a biome that you've either written or would like to write that just, like, the place itself, either the diversity of plants and animals or whatever, is something that you, you just, you geek about. I... Right now, um, like I'm always fascinated with coastal environments of all kinds. Like, um, and that might be because I grew up on a boat and have and grew up in Florida as well, um, and have never lived very far from the ocean. So I'm always kind of aware of that. Uh, and also, kind of that's how this podcast started was because Marshall Ryan Mareska and I were talking about <laughs> tides on Twitter. Um, uh, so. But I think that I would like to explore more inland kinds of biomes eventually. Like I would love to do um, something in the desert or in a very like Mongolian steppe kind of kind of uh, setting. Uh, as for me, the you know I've been I've been in my tempered broadleaf forest for for a while now with my Meridane books. Um, the book that I'm going to be writing after I finished this round of Meridane things, which is sort of my break book. Um, I'm basing that part of the world very much on Mexico, so it's got that sort of subtropical, not 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 so much subtropical desert, but subtropical dry Ooh. forest biome feel to it, and so I'm mm-hmm. I'm going to have a lot of fun with that, I think, and and doing doing different things with that with that sort of environment that. And how that influences yeah. everything from the cuisine to the dress to to all that. And in ways that you don't typically see in fantasy. So. Oh, yeah. How about you, Rowena? Yeah, I have spent a lot of time kind of, I think, writing things that are more familiar to me because I, I live in a very woodland area. In fact, I'm looking out out of my window at, like, you know, green forests, and that's kind of where I am. Um, but I think it's really cool to kind of dig into things you're less familiar with, because it kind of challenges. Like, we talk about, you know, do you go with your kind of preconceptions, or do you go with something that turns mm-hmm. things inside out? And I think that looking at less familiar biomes really does that. Um, I'm kind of playing with a project now that's um, it's desert-based, so it's a little, you know, deserts, fantasy. But I kind of started getting the idea for it actually by watching yeah I'm a dork planet earth um but how many of the animals within um, the desert environment are basically subterranean and they maybe come out at night or don't come out at all and so I kind of like I swear this story kind of just percolated up from these little blind golden moles that spend most of their time underground and they're very they look like little donuts and they're really cute um but that kind of, you know, so how do you build from that idea of like yeah. this little animal that spends its life underground because it's too hot outside and there's other things that are all moving around or they can't be seen. And that was kind of, yeah. I wanted to play with that. It's been fun. <laughs> cool. So um, 
as we move on into like how do you build this thing, I think an interesting question to start with would be the why of why you would choose building a certain biome over another. And Rowena mentioned um, like exploring something that's a little bit unfamiliar to you, but more on a craft level. Um, do you associate sort of different themes with different biomes? Um, can the, the biome itself be kind of a character uh, in the book? What, what are your thoughts on that? So, so, so donut mole is not a sufficient reason to, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> well, no, it absolutely is. I think that's the best reason. <laughs> no, I think that's a really good question um, because, I mean, whether you intend it or not, I think that readers read thematic elements in the setting. Um, and so if you have, like, for instance, seasons, mm-hmm. that's going to play into your story in ways that are... Um, you know, I don't want to say a trope to readers, but that play into familiar ideas. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really good point that there are thematic elements that come out in a, in a setting and particularly in a biome, um, regardless of what you do. And I think certainly I, I believe that when you're, when you start with the biome, then the other environmental factors of, you know, climate immediately come into play and the factors of, the wildlife and which plants and which animals are even there and how that dictates the way life in that area is going to be and everything about whatever story you're then telling falls from those dominoes and it's it they're defined by those initial choices right which i mean that's part of why i love this part of the process of you know doing the sort of big world build full bottom-up structure is rather than being like, I'm going to tell a story that takes place in the wetlands is Mm -hmm. the process of starting with the map and figuring out the environments, figuring out the biomes, and then be like, where are the cool stories based on what I've, what I've built here and, and, and digging deep into that. Yes. Yes. Well, because I think you either, either you pick a story that you want to tell and then you have to structure a biome that's going to work for it. Or you have a biome, and in some ways it's going to dictate the stories that are going to happen within it to some degree. So it's like there's this mm-hmm. kind of tension there that there are certain stories that, you know, if this is the story I want to tell, I have to frame it in certain ways. So, you know, if you think about, um, you know, how difficult is it to live in a place if just surviving an environment is something that is an important part of your story you know, there are certain biomes that really lead into that. Someone getting, you know, stranded on the tundra is going to be a very different story than someone being in a comfortable, you know, coastline set of villages that they can just kind of like wander 10 miles over and be like, hi, I'm hungry. Yes. yes. So it's, it, there's definite choices that happen. And then there's similarities too, because then um, like being stranded on the tundra, um, you have kind of the same, well, not the same, but very similar kinds of concerns as to being stranded in the middle of the desert. You have to uh, look for ways to control your temperature. You have to wonder, well, where am I going to get food in this quote-unquote barren wasteland, even though there are hardly any barren wasteland. It's just people who are like not good at spotting biodiversity. Um, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so like there are, are, are similarities uh, even in biomes that may seem extremely different, uh, different from each other, just by the the difficulty it is you have in um, surviving in them, for sure. So one thing I find really interesting, um, especially when you're plotting a story um, that may span a few days or it may span years, is seasonality. So does your biome have, you know, obviously climate is one of the mm-hmm. main factors of creating a biome. Does that climate have differences in seasonality? Are they temperature based or are they, do you have a wet season and a dry season? Like you have, um, I think it's like the, the Okavango in um, the Kalahari Desert in Africa, that it's a desert for like half the year. And then the rain water um, kind of floods in from other parts of Africa and it turns into a a swamp, a wetland. Interesting. So it's like you have two biomes kind of like flip-flopping in the same spot. So you can have some pretty extreme seasonality that can happen if you play with it. Yeah, or you have uh, examples like uh, 
southern Asia where you get the monsoon seasons um, and then you're dealing mm-hmm. with like sort of the dry season where it's more possible to do um, agriculture and things like that. And then you have a wet season where it is too wet to go out and do pretty much anything because the streets are flooded every day. That's a little bit of an extreme example and that doesn't happen everywhere. Um, but certainly like that kind of intense rainy season is going to affect like the way of life as well as the environment itself. And certainly how how the culture will look at what seasons even mean, if they see it as four seasons, if they see it as two seasons. There are some cultures even that see, that break down the year into six seasons. Oh, um, interesting. It's basically how we would define it is spring, pre-summer, summer, pre-autumn, autumn, and winter. No, yeah, I see that. I see that. Because like pre-spring, Spring is sort of like wet and brown and then like proper spring is like everything bursting into bloom and then quote unquote pre-autumn is like when everything is red and then autumn itself is like when everything is again like brown and sticky and dead but it hasn't started snowing yet, right? Right. And and part of how a culture will define that is is dependent on their environmental factor. If you're not observing it via, you know, mm-hmm. the sun and the stars, but in through just what you're going through, then six might seem a more natural breakdown than four, even though four by definition of, uh, of how the planet moves around the sun is, is technically more correct because of equinoxes and solstices. Yeah. It's also a little bit easier to do the math with four than it is with six. Cause <laughs> Like some of those sixes are like, like pre-spring or sorry, proper spring when everything is in flower and then pre-autumn when everything is, when all the leaves are red, they don't last very long. You only get like a couple weeks out of those, whereas the others kind of last a, a solid couple months, right? Right. I mean, I feel like we have mud season for approximately like three months every spring, like between like yeah. snow melt and like it finally getting warm. It's like it's mud season. Yep. Oh, lovely. And yeah, mud season is kind of my least favorite. Yeah. Because <laughs> uh, like by that time, you're so tired of winter and you're just ready for spring to start and it's dragging its heels and then everything is gross and wet uh, and still cold. So, yeah, it's a whole thing. Um, but shall we uh, like build some biomes ourselves? Would we like to do that now? Like specifically looking at the maps? Sure. So... One of the ways I like organizing things on maps like this when I'm still in the just drawing the map and figuring out biomes and figuring out like where things are, thus I don't have names for things because I don't have cultures and I don't have names for anything. So I just generate what the basic areas are based on continents or sections of continents and just like it was an outline, just Roman numeral one, two, three, four, five. So that's what I've done with this map so far is just break it down into 15 areas and then Mm -hmm. from there then you know i will later then break down you know into deeper regions and all that and i get really deeply nerdy and about this sort of thing which is why this podcast exists cool (laughs) and we'll talk about that sort of thing more in the future about organizing your information in wikis and spreadsheets and such yes 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 indeed and I think we, I will nominate Jen Lyons to come on and do a, a guest co- host because she is extremely intense with her organization and her, uh, her wiki and her world building. Uh, so I think she will have some amazing insights for us. I would love to hear her insights because I read that one article she wrote yes. and I was like, you know, teach me Obi-Wan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We all fell a little bit in love with Jen Lyons after that article. You can say it out loud. Uh, so let's play a little bit of a game then. Uh, let's each of us call dibs on one of these uh, sections on the map here, and then we'll take turns sort of discussing them as a group. Okay. I am going to shamelessly jump in and claim section eight. Ooh, section eight. Good choice. Yes. Okay. Then I will shamelessly claim section 12. Right. I... It's a really hard choice. They're all so good. Um, I am going to go with... She's <laughs> just like so many choices. Yeah. You know what? Just to make things interesting, I'm going to go with section 11. Ooh. Because I think we need to... It's interesting, right? Yeah. Yes. So let's start with section 11, though. So what, what drew you to it, first of all? Well, 
we had selected two excellent choices, section 12 and section 8, um, but they are both um, not completely landlocked sections, mm -hmm. um, but they are um, very land-y sections, whereas yep. section 11 is, um, I would imagine, a much more... Um, combined water and land it's um if you're not looking at the map right now it is a series of of long thin islands yes an archipelago i i do love an archipelago i'm gonna you gotta love an archipelago you gotta love an archipelago um, i'm gonna be honest i almost picked section 11 myself cause, <laughs> just because i like an archipelago so much so i i was drawn to the idea of coastlines mm -hmm. and integration of um water and land biomes because this, i mean you're going to be having um those kind of crashing together there pretty hard so yeah and it looks like it's just north of the equator um so like subtropical but maybe not tropical itself right yeah i was seeing that as probably having a um exactly not exactly tropical but probably um somewhat especially for the northern regions fairly temperate climate um yeah it, it, it covers a good bit of of space this archipelago um so i think the climate at the northern end versus the southern end is going to be pretty distinctly different. Yes. Um, and since it's uh, so close to the water, like the water is also going to make the, the climate a little bit more temperate. Uh, it's not going to be quite so uh, wild in terms of its, its temperature swings. Right. Because um, the ocean around it is both going to cool the heat and also like warm the, the cold in winter. Right. Um, so it's going to be pretty comfortable. At the same time, it's got a lot of ocean surrounding it, particularly on its eastern side. So it could be subject mm -hmm. to, depending on what our weather patterns look like, could be subject to some interesting um, and perhaps severe weather patterns as it is going to be taking the brunt of any um, westward moving um, currents, winds, and storm surges that could come through. So I thought that could be interesting, too, um, just because... Um, any biome there is, is not, it can't be too dainty because if there are storms um, pushing in from that big expanse of ocean, um, they have yeah. to be weathering that. So things like, and, yeah, for and sure. swinging back around to those mangroves, um, if we do have mangrove forests in any part of that, that's actually something that kind of helps to absorb any kind of nasty weather. So I definitely envision there being, especially along the southern tip of that bit, there being some potential for mangrove forests in there. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the island is also, go, or the series of islands is also going to form kind of a, a windbreak for, for those storms. So on the lee side, mm -hmm. uh, we have this fairly large sea. Almost, I think we could just call it a, a smaller ocean. It's not like an Atlantic-sized ocean, but it's certainly bigger than, for example, the Mediterranean. Um, and then on the, the other side of that, we have uh, Section 8 and Section 12, which we'll get to in a, a hot second here. Uh, so I, I'm seeing a potential for, and this is probably getting a little bit of, ahead of myself, but I'm seeing a potential for quite a lot of trade happening in this kind of protect, protected area of the water. Um, we have lots of small little islands where ships will be able to make stops uh, on their, their journeys, their voyages. Um, so I think a lot of like we're setting ourselves up for a good bit of trade and, and yes. economics when we get into that in a future episode. You know, and even before we get into human trade, um, because these are islands that are separated from each other but still close together, we probably have some um, biodiversity trade too. We probably mm -hmm. have a little bit of isolation, but we probably also have things like plants, birds, animals hitching rides from place to place and populating these islands, so you probably have some similarities in terms of flora and fauna between these islands, but you may have distinct um, distinct species that are cropping up on individual islands as well. Yeah, I would agree. I see um, we have a little chain of islands that almost makes it to uh, section 9, which is on the southern continent here, right next to uh, my section 8. Um, so I'm, I think that there would probably be uh, animals that would come from that southern continent up through that little chain of islands and then uh, into this archipelago. I would think that here. chain is technically part of Eleven, if, if you know, in terms of the wider scope of Eleven. So, but yeah, that's definitely. Yeah. It's definitely got. No, yeah, exactly. the, the place where like migrating birds or such would. Right. Would move from there up to the the longer islands and then back down again. Yes. 
can I definitely say that I, I absolutely see these islands as being prime, like, bird nesting territory for migratory birds. Like, there's, there's some species of birds that are just hanging out, having nests on those islands for, like, a few months of the year. And seals, too. They're, they're doing their thing, having seal babies. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, lots of lots of seabirds too, because you have like the huge, huge ocean um, on the eastern side. Uh, you know what's cool is albatrosses. Yes, there there is a, there's an extended albatross metaphor in Frey, by the way. Oh, is there? Yes. Fantastic. Yes. <laughs> Wonderful. Because albatrosses are my favorite. Do we have any other questions or comments that we want to make about uh, section eleven here? So I just added another map there real quick. This is how dorky I am that I could do this this quick. fantastic. Um, Which shows the climate zones so you can see where the equator is, where the the temperate zone starts, where the Arctic stones are. So so you can see all that. Oh, man, I just grabbed, uh, like, right on the equator, didn't I? (laughs) Cool. I was, for some reason, I was picturing the equator being a little bit further north. I don't know why. Uh, But... Fantastic. Cool. Great. Uh, Shall we, did we have any other uh, questions about 11? That's going to be an area where it is a little more monsoony rather than that you're going to see like those sort of trade winds bringing the rainy season, bringing the dry season. The seasonality is going to be a little different. Yeah. Rather than a full four seasons temperate. Yeah. Uh, Shall we move on? Sure. Uh, do you want to go first or shall I? I'll, I'll go next, sure. Okay. So um, the big things I see in section 12 um, is is it being a very sort of very sort of fertile crescenty sort of place. Mm-hmm. It's going to be very warm and being the sort of place where you're going to get a lot of biodiversity and a lot of the sort of the sort of crops that will become easy to harvest and domesticate together. And there's all sorts of lovely nooks and crannies and islands and all that on the coastline and all that. So I definitely was seeing like that would be a cool place for trade and civilizations to arise and that sort of thing. Excellent. Yeah. So you have uh, like you have this little bit of an inland sea over on the, the western side of Section 11. You have a teeny little... Um, kind of like Lake Superior sort of large lake uh, right in the middle of it. Uh, and it's kind of the uh, a chunky peninsula, like a really long chunky peninsula uh, on the southern end of this uh, northern continent. Yeah. Uh, and it's right on the, the border between the subtropical and temperate zones. Uh, so uh, what sort, you said like a fertile crescent kind of uh, so a warmer uh, climate, you think? Yes. Yeah. And and like very like already putting me in mind of Bronze Age civilization level of trade and and growth and sort of like in ancient Egypt or ancient Greece or Mesopotamia sort of thing is immediately what comes to mind just looking at the map. Yeah, and it looks like um, like you've put elevation here as well uh which is fantastic look at you so fancy with this map uh and so it looks like yours is is fairly flat like you have a little bit of uh higher highlands uh right in the middle of that area uh but not nearly so high as uh just north of it like it looks like you have a, a pretty strong mountain range um just to the north which is blocking it off a little bit from uh sections 14 and 13 yeah uh so you're thinking more like flatlands, kind of? Right. Okay. Um, so, yeah, I, I think I would agree with you. Like, this definitely, like, has a strong base of, of agriculture. Uh, lots of, I think, domesticated animals, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit later. And it's right across the, quote-unquote, Mediterranean Sea uh, from Section 8, which we'll talk about in a second. So probably... Um, there's going to be a, a good deal of either trade or wars uh, between <laughs> or, both. <laughs> or both. Why not both? <laughs> crab bag. Uh, between these two, uh, and if if there are like uh, rival civilizations, then I imagine that there's going to be a sort of struggle to for for dominance in uh, in this area of the world. Yes. Cool. cool awesome. Cool. Uh, how about just for funsies? 
make up a domesticated animal for us that would be originating in uh, Section 12 here. As in pick something or make something up? Make one up. Oh, wow. I'm putting oh, you on wow. the spot here. Putting yeah, me on you're the talking, spot there. So. You're talking a big game about all this world-building stuff, Marshall right, Ryan you're right, you're right. Like, so, put the money um, where your mouth is. <laughs> yes. So, um... I really love thinking about like some of the some of the megafauna from both Australia and America that didn't survive. Oh, shit, yeah. Um, Ew, yeah. So like you had in the Americas these sort of like giant sloth-like things that would eat avocados whole and all that. So, and I mean, it strikes me if you have something that's sort of big and lumbering and eats avocados, um, you know, start out calm enough that humans can approach them. That would be the sort of thing. That could be easily easily domesticated. So yeah, let's say that's, that's badass. Are they are they used for meat or milk or uh, are they like pack animals or like more like sloth oxen sloth? I, I think that they get a lot of uses. Um, I think pack animals and like oxen and also as meat are the primary ones. Um, yeah, but. You know, you would also get them, you know, they probably wouldn't be the best for actual riding, I would think. And <laughs> yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't get there very quickly. Yeah. And milk is probably an option, but not not a great option. Pack animals and, and meat are, are the, the top options. You think you can get a sloth to move when and where you want it to go? <laughs> if you have enough avocados, well, of course you can. <laughs> you well, have sure, enough avocados sure, sure, sure. and it All begins right. to be like, this guy's my avocado source. <laughs> All right, cool, cool. So giant sloths. But like it's it's for like the heavy pulling kind of kind of moving, sure. not the not the get up and ride across the across the continent right. kind of move because they're they're not built for that. Right, but, right. But for the 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 strong steady yes. pulling kind of thing, yes. Yeah. So, so if you have like mining operations or ferries or things like that, that you have to have that that strong steady sloth pull instead of the rapid. Horse chariot. They're, they're perfect for that. Yeah. Excellent. Love it. Love it. Uh, shall we move on to Section 8? Move on to Section 8. All right. So Section 8 is uh, the northern nub of the southern continent. It's a fairly large nub. I think that uh, whatever civilization develops here is going to have, like, a lot of... Um, you know, space to spread out, and they might be the dominant culture of this, uh, this continent here. Uh, it is right on the equator. Uh, so this is going to be a very hot climate. Uh, it's going to be, again, uh, tempered a little bit on the coastline. Uh, I'm imagining it's sort of like Australia, where you have uh, a little bit of greenery around the coastline, but then the interior is like desert. And uh, we have a little bit of highlands, so there's probably going to be like some dramatic uh, rock formations and uh, some nifty geology uh, around in this area, but I think primarily it's like a Australian desert kind of kind of situation in terms of the biome. That's that's pretty cool. I like that. Yeah, excellent. So, are there any particular flora or fauna that are indigenous to your section that are notable that we should take take note of? Well, we've talked a little bit about uh, Rowena's albatrosses and Marshall Ryan Maresca's uh, domesticated <laughs> sloths, so I feel like I should go more for flora, uh, which is cool, because I really like making up weird plants. Fun fact, just to go on a little bit of a tangent, in Choir of Lies, uh, it's about fantasy tulip mania. And the fantasy tulip is, which is called a star in the marsh. It's a bioluminescent carnivorous marsh flower. And it is one of the first things that I made up for this world um, back in like 2012. I came up with the flower before I came up with anything else in the world. So it was like bioluminescence is fucking awesome. And uh, megafauna is also awesome. Speaking of bioluminescence, yeah. we do have like the weird magnetism and the aurora borealises that are super strong. We do. So that might be things to think about in terms of things like bioluminescence yeah, and, yeah. and the sort of survival strategies that animals would have. This is very true. And as we, and survival strategies and also potentially um, like like mating strategies, like instead of bright mm -hmm. foliage or what or, or not foliage, but um, feathers on birds, maybe they glow in the dark. Did we also decide that 
at some point during the planet's uh, cycle around the the sun, it runs into like this dark cloud and it blots out all the stars. No, we were, we talked about that, and then we decided we liked the aurora borealis as a more as more okay. as the so, yeah, so. as the methodology of of star obfuscation. Okay. <laughs> okay. Obfuscation. So there's no so there's no phase of the year where where the sky is completely dark. Okay. Um, so since it's a desert, I think it's going to have to be some kind of succulent, some kind of cactus-like thing, which can uh, store water for a long time. Um, cactuses are interesting because, like, since they're storing water for themselves, they have to come up with defense mechanisms so that other things cannot steal their water from them. I think for this one, I want it to be underground. So it's going to be like this big tuber kind of kind of thing, like a, a an underground pumpkin. And uh, it might put up little shoots into uh, into uh, above the surface so that it can sense when the, the rain is coming and, and get a little bit of uh, sunlight for its photosynthesis. But the, the majority of the plant is going to be a large thing underground. Uh, once we get into uh, travelers and cultures, I think that these are going to be extremely useful for... Uh, the people trying to pass through the desert. If you find one of these in the desert when you're uh, starving or thirsty, uh, it's pretty much going to save your life. Uh, major windfall there. So probably it has a hard shell on the outside as well. So underground, a hard shell so that things can't burrow in, in through the side of it very easily. Uh, and not a lot of greenery above the surface. I don't have a name for it yet, but come back to me and I will uh, think of something. But it's definitely one of those things that, like, the local cultures have six bazillion uses oh, yeah. for it. Yes. Like, you know, they, they get water from it. They, they have make eight different types of food from it. They, they use that, that outer shell to, to make tools, yeah. to make armor. They do, you know they do they, everything. You know they make alcohol from it. <laughs> oh, yeah. They make alcohol oh, yeah. from it. I mean, um, I think it's kind of like a gourd. Like, you can probably scrape out whatever is on the inside and dry the shell and use it for, like, dishes and large bowls and, and uh, vats for storing things in. Uh, and since it's so durable, uh, I think it will make a sort of good storage material there. So they might not have as much pottery because they have these cool plant-based containers. Yeah. Neat. Neat. Love it. Uh, that was fun. So we've talked a little bit about about just different cool things we can do, especially with a fantasy system of creating creating new species and all that, but probably a lot of times people will just want to use... We'll, we'll want to use either, you know, existing things. They'll just want cows and pigs and chickens because that makes life easier. And why wouldn't you? Because that makes life easier. And then integrate your fantastical creatures into that mix, maybe. You'll want to think about what, what animals and plants can be that you have that can be domesticated. And I have all sorts of lists, and they'll be on the webpage. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> because I'm not going to go over them all here. And then once you, once you have that information, then you can, you can make all sorts of cool decisions about what cultures can mm -hmm. be like based on that. So it's definitely a, a, one of those things where you're in a very big choose or presume moment. And I think you see a lot of fantasy authors that do a lot of presuming of that sort of basic Western... Yeah. Like, everyone has horses, everyone has cows, uh, and we forget about things like, I don't know, aurochs, which didn't go extinct until, like, the 1600s. Or they have, or ignore just things like goats or sheep, when those could be the, the more dominant thing. Yeah. And same yes. thing with the crops. And you'll get things where sometimes fantasy authors will include wheat and corn and potatoes all in the same place, which is not how things went in the real world. And mm -hmm. it's not necessarily wrong, but it's, it is one of those things that yeah. I, I, when I see that, I'm hoping that the author is making a choice about something rather than not thinking about what they were doing. Um, <laughs> and usually with the rest of the stuff in the book, it shows yourself, shows you that it's the other. Um, but, like, we wanted to talk a little bit about the potato issue. <laughs> yes. Uh, the potato issue, which is also the tomato issue, because both of these came from uh, the New World, and a lot of fantasy 
traditionally, although this is changing now, um, has been very like Western European based, right? Um, and the, the potato and the tomato were not introduced until... The Colombian exchange. Yeah, exactly. Post-Columbian, yeah. Exactly, post-contact with the New World. Though it should be noted that they did take off quite quickly in terms of um, agriculture once they did get there. So also an interesting kind of like point in there in terms of um, analogous climates and what works mm-hmm. in one place and what's going to work in another place. Yeah. Um, and sort of an anti-related issue, the not-potato, um, where you have a lot of people not realizing where certain crops or plants originate from, something that seems like it must be super foreign and super new world and, like, would not fit into your, like, quote-unquote typical Western fantasy. So, for example, um, marijuana is native to India. Uh, and so if you're writing a Middle Eastern fantasy or a Southern, uh, Southern Asian flavored fantasy, um, you're going to have access to things like marijuana or, uh, opium, I think is more often included. Yes. I think you do get opiate kind of, yeah, cause kind of analogs. That, that seems more fantasy acceptable for reasons. There's some, there's some issues there. There is, there is some issues there. Say well, what? I think Opium feels a little more old worldy than whereas marijuana feels modern. Yeah. There's a lot there's a whole lot of stuff, especially when you're doing sort of renaissance middle agey kind of fantasy, where things might feel right or wrong, even though they're not necessarily right or wrong. Yes. And it's It's weird. Like, you'll get things like, well, that didn't actually... No, that did actually exist back then, but but it it seems wrong. Yep, yep. I I call that the authenticity fallacy, that we're kind of predisposed by what we've read and seen in terms of film and, and books previously to have an idea of what authentic means. And so we kind of go into things with this authenticity fallacy in mind. Um, what's the, the, um, the, the Tiffany fallacy? That the name Tiffany, if you had a medieval character named Tiffany, could not possibly be authentic. Oh, yes. But in fact, Tiffany is an, a variant of a name that existed in the medieval period. So it is kind of a weird reader, writer, actual historical fact triangle relationship yeah. Where how do you write something that feels authentic when a lot of the things that your reader might assume are actually not correct? Or the name Jennifer, which is really just a variant of the name Guinevere. Yes, or, or Jessica, which is Shakespearean. Yep, yep. But yeah, all three of those names definitely have a very modern kind of feel to them. And if I saw, I think Jessica slightly less. Um, but if I saw the name Tiffany or Jennifer in a fantasy novel, it would definitely throw me for a loop, even though I know (laughs) those facts about them. (laughs) Yeah. Like I know better and still it would, it would throw me off a little bit. So Um, so the question is, is the potato issue or the tomato issue or the marijuana issue, are they actual biome issues or are they reader authenticity fallacy issues? Because you can certainly have a biome in a sort of Western European-y sort of setting that has tubers like potatoes. Mm-hmm. Um, so is it, is it a biome problem or is it a reader-writer problem? No, I, I think it's definitely more of a reader-writer problem. Um, another issue that I just thought of while you were talking about this is the coffee issue. And I think we may have mentioned this in the first episode, I want to say, where you have a writer thinking that they're going to get like, ooh, I'm going to do world building. I'm going to take coffee and I'm just going to give it a slightly different spelling of the word coffee. And it's going to sound very exotic and everyone will know what I mean, except it will sound more fantasy, right? Cafe. Like cave or <laughs> ca- cave, yeah. Um, whereas just, just like use coffee, just use coffee. They had it. It's fine. I'm a big believer that if there if there is a real name for something, just use it. Just use it. Call a spade a spade. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and again, it's unless, unless you are writing an alt history, um, it's made up. So you aren't actually writing medieval England or Renaissance Italy or 17th century India. You're, you're writing an analog that's inspired by it, maybe. So mm-hmm. maybe you can be allowed to, to play a little bit. 
um, with what is there and then use terms that your reader is going to understand, which is important. Though I, I will confess yes. in Import of Intrigue, there's a whole plot about the fact that sugar is being created, which is from a different part of the world, is being essentially snuck into the city to be processed there and then snuck back out again without the local culture knowing anything about it. Um, but so they don't have the word sugar, but I have the root words of the other two cultures that are using it both be sort of light sugar. So then when the other, when the main characters are sort of mispronouncing it, like, uh, I don't know, sugar? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That is super like interesting. That. Something that something very in, uh, similar happened with the wool industry in England because um, I I might get this backwards, and if I do, then my friend Freya is going to correct me because she's a super nerd for this. Um, but I believe that the best quality wool fiber was being produced in England, but the best quality fabric production was happening in. France. So you had to smuggle the wool out of England, have it processed in France, and then have it smuggled back in uh, with yes. tariffs and so forth. Because England had Nutter Butter's um, strict um, production rules and sale rules about their domestically produced fibers. They, of they course you would know really, about this, Rowena. They were really Nutter Butter's about that, so yeah. Yep, yep. Uh, I don't know, how did I think of that? <laughs> it doesn't oh, matter. Oh, because of the, the smuggling fun. sugar. That's right. <laughs> yeah. But that I mean, but with all of those things including potatoes in in the marinade books, I always make a point of just throwing even a throwaway line of like where it's actually from originally or something like that so that if people are like is he re they will see if they're wondering if I'm choosing or presuming yeah. that it's all choices. That's also that's also a good trick for like sneaking in extra bits of world building is just like mentioning that other places exist. Right. Um, like I, I talked on Twitter a little bit the other day about how uh, someone gave me a lovely compliment about how uh, deep and intricate the world building in Conspiracy of Truths was. And I was like, well, like 50 percent of it is just me <laughs> tricking you into doing the work for me. Uh, by just like mentioning some other place and making the name of that place like wildly linguistically different to anything that this character is is talking about so that you know it is a different place. It is something completely um, outside the realm of anything that might be uh, recognizable in this current setting. Yeah, you can do a lot with linguistics and, and names of places and just like casually mentioning things. So we're coming up to the end of the episode um, someone put a dot point here in our, our episode organization document about the big question. Uh, who was that? And would you like to introduce that? Oh, that was me. <laughs> of course it was. You're so good at these. <laughs> um, so the big question, which is sort of our lead into to next week's topic or our next episode's topic, because we are a biweekly podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, so our next is intelligent species. Like what kind of people are we going to have in populate the world and how does that work? Is it just going to be humans? Is it going to be humans and other things? Is it going to be nothing human whatsoever? Um, are the giant sloths intelligent? Are the giant sloths intelligent? Are they the are oh, they the ones civilization in of giant sloth sloths, possibly. <laughs> well, personally, I have a tendency to lean towards human only. Um, As do I. You know, because yeah, yeah. Um, because if you introduce different sort of magical races like elves and, and dwarves, I think it becomes very easy to fall into stereotypes about them that are unintentionally racist. And with if you're doing it with just humans, then you're sort of always aware that you're talking about people and that you can't make stereotypes about about people like that. So I and because like humans have so much like diversity and and like a huge spectrum of, of cultures already that I don't really see a need to personally uh, to reach for elves or dwarves or orcs or things like that, because there's already so much material that we have just with humans. Yeah. And I think that if, if you are going to reach for other races, I think that it's has to be a very deliberate choice that you are not, um, using them as kind of stand-ins for human race diversity. Mm -hmm. 
Absolutely. Um, because I think that that's an easy trap to fall into. Like, well, I, I have humans and elves and fairies and this and, and not really digging into what that actually means. What I would be fine with um, is if the world was primarily humans Except there was like a small contingent of quote unquote elves, which were really aliens from a different planet that had like <laughs> landed there thousands of years ago. Because like the question is, how did these two almost identical uh, intelligent races develop side by side and yet be so completely different? Right. And if one of them is like aliens, uh, for, for one thing, aliens in a fantasy novel is pretty fucking cool. Right. So um, let me tell you, this is a really old yeah. school kind of obscure reference, but in the GURPS books, if you ever okay. you did GURPS instead of Dungeons and Dragons like I did, they, you know, the GURPS itself is designed to be a generic system that you can use for anything, but they do have their own specific fantasy setting. And it, in the history of the fantasy setting, it was a world of just elves and orcs that were essentially two sides of the same coin. They were, they were mm -hmm. versions of the same species and they hated each other and made war with each other. And the elves were like, we need to do something to get rid of the orcs. So they do this massive spell that will eliminate all the orcs and they fuck it up. <laughs> okay. And the way fucking it up manifested was it created this massive magical maelstrom, which drew in creatures from other worlds, including humans from Earth. Interesting. So then you have okay. this world that has all these other, all these various species that now are stuck there, and that's why the humans have pseudo-European and pseudo-Arabian cultures, because those are mm -hmm. humans from those areas who have been separated from those areas for you know, a few hundred years. And so they, they yeah. have that sort of sense of culture, but they've lost a lot. But it's, so it's got that sort of similar feel. So I thought that was this brilliant way to create a, a world that had, you know, pseudo medieval humans and elves and orcs and dwarves and goblins and all that oh, and have it be yeah. a system that worked. Cause it's kind of like a portal fantasy. Right. On a larger scale. <laughs> yes. Interesting. Yes. Because because it, it is a good question, right? I mean, it, not that any world that you create has to follow our our real world's evolutionary pattern, but we kind of know what happens in terms of development of intelligent, quote unquote, intelligent species. Um, I mean, I'm guessing we're calling humans intelligent, even though sometimes Debatable. I question that. <laughs> yeah. um, but, but we know what happens. You end up with one that kind of... Um, populates up. One thing that I found kind of interesting in some fantasies um, recently, and I, I think this crops up almost more in um, children's young adult than it does in adult, but it would be fun to play with more in adult, is um, non-humanoid mm, yeah. intelligent um, giant sloths. You know, species. Like, yes, like giant sloths. Or you see dragons a lot. Oh, yeah. Dragons are an intelligent. I mean, that can, that can go either way. You can have fantasies that the dragons are just big, you know, lizard things. Or they can be very intelligent lizard Things. And I think that's an interesting question, too. Our intelligent species, is that just an analog for our people? Or are people a bigger category than, than just humanoid, bipedal things? That is a really, a really good question. Um, since we're, like, right at the end of the episode now, I propose that we table the question of, are there other intelligent races besides human? And we discuss it on the next episode when we're going to be talking a little bit more about cultures and people and and such like everyone agree does that sound I agree. good excellent all right cool hi you Thanks for listening to this episode of World Building for Masochists and letting us help you overcomplicate your writing life. That was great fun, wasn't it? Building the planets and the heavens is all well and good, but environments, flora, and fauna is where you really start seeing the shape of stories start to develop. I can already think of some nifty ways that Marshall Ryan Maresca could use his giant sloths in a story, or how my weird underground water tubers could have a dramatic effect on the outcome of a plot. Anyway, our next episode goes up on August 7th. At last, we're going to start building some cultures and talking about the people who live in those places. I'm really fascinated to hear what sort of neat things the other two come up with for their pet sections about the world. 
I'm already terribly fond of Section 8, my uh, Australian desert kind of uh, section of the world. I've only had it for half an hour, but if anything happened to it, I'd... Well, I wouldn't kill everyone in the room and then myself, actually. I'd probably just write a book about it. We really hope that you liked this episode. If you did, please do take a minute to tell a friend, shout about us on the internet, or leave a review somewhere. If you've got questions or you just want to tell us how cute we are, there's a number of ways to contact us. We're on Twitter and Tumblr as at WorldBuildCast, and our email is WorldBuildCast at gmail.com. Here's your cool fact of the day. If the albatrosses on Rowena's archipelago are anything like the ones in the real world, they can drink salt water and fly over 10,000 miles in a single journey.